0: VEGCAST Bitchin' VEGCAST I'm Vance here with VEGCAST 43 VEGCAST A full menu from first to last VEGCAST Yes, regular listeners will note that I do not usually begin VEGCAST by saying... But I did this time to let you know that I have given myself permission to use the word bitchin' uh, since we are pleased to have on this VegCast as our guest Rory Friedman, the co-author of the best-selling diet and lifestyle books Skinny Bitch and Skinny Bitch in the Kitch. And it's just not possible to talk about those books and their message and their methodology without using the word bitch, and so, in fact, we do in our conversation spend a good amount of time talking about the word and about uh, how it works as a marketing tool and whether there's any problem with uh, using the word bitch. Now, of course, uh, you know, I'm a man, she's a woman women perhaps can use the word bitch while men can't. Is that the case? We're going to delve into all of those issues as we go into this, as well as talking, of course, about vegetarianism and animal rights and how that can be promoted in offbeat ways. And we will have a musical selection, as always, as well as a science fact, about which I guarantee you'll go nuts. Oh, cutting edge. Humor, isn't it? All right, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the 43rd edition of VegCast. Okay, let me first remind you that this VegCast is sponsored by Temptation Vegan Ice Cream. Check them out at GoTemptation.com. Dot com. Now, the backstory for this podcast, uh, you may recall we took a trip to the Pacific Northwest a couple of podcasts ago. And while I was there, I was looking at uh, the various websites of some of the vegan businesses in Portland. You may remember the Vegan Mini Mall uh, story. And on the Food Fight Grocery Forum, there was a lot of debate about a strip club uh, called Casa Diablo, Gentlemen's Club which uh, was a vegan strip club, and people were debating whether or not you could have such a thing, whether being a vegan somehow meant that you were non-sexist, that you uh, were against the exploitation of women or anything that smacked of exploitation. And I thought this was an interesting topic then. And then uh, the New York Times came out with an article on March 27th that I received forwarded in emails from at least five different people. It said, oh, man, you're going to love this one. Uh, so, of course, I had happened to have already found it before that, but I appreciated getting it. Uh, the title is The Carrot Some Vegans Deplore. I'm not really... Uh, Clear on how that's supposed to be a good headline, but somebody came up with that, and that will be linked in our show notes so you can read that whole story. They got a lot of different opinions on that from uh, different vegans on whether or not this was a good idea and whether or not the general trend of using what might be considered sexist tactics and strategies, uh, are consistent with a vegan message. And so uh, on this podcast, we're going to talk with uh, Rory Friedman, as I said, co-author of Skinny Bitch and Skinny Bitch in the Kitch, And we're going to try to get to the bottom of that as well as uh, learning about uh, the basic story behind how Skinny Bitch came about. So let's go to that interview right now. Okay, right now on VegCast, we have joining us by phone the co-author of Skinny Bitch and Skinny Bitch in the Kitch, Rory Friedman. Rory, welcome to VegCast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I wanted to especially uh, talk with you right now as there's some, you know, kind of a controversy in the air, at least in the the mainstream media. But before we get to that, uh, let's just talk about these two books. Your first book, uh, was which you co-authored. It was uh, it had a, a vegan kind of sensibility to it, but it had a lot to do with fashion and presentation and stuff. And this this new one is really more focused on food. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Uh, right. Our first book, Skinny Bitch, is sort of a how to eat guide. Um, not so much about fashion, but it's a vegan diet book packaged as more of a chick lit kind of book to make sure that. We're not preaching to the choir because Kim and I are both vegans. Kim is my co-author, and we wanted to make sure that if we were going to write a book and include information about slaughterhouses and factory farms, that people would read the book and that it wouldn't just be vegans or vegetarians reading it and agreeing, yeah, this is an important book for people to read. So we, we purposely marketed it towards mainstream women and um our second book is a follow-up skinny bitch in the kitchen and it was um it's a cookbook and it's just recipes all vegan of course and it was really just for the readers who were responding to the to the first book skinny bitch and saying great now we're adapting um, uh, all these changes into our lifestyle and we're becoming vegetarian or vegan and what else can we eat and what more can we do so this was for
0: them okay so the i'm sorry but i did not uh, read the original skinny bitch but uh, i was going by how it was uh, characterized, and I thought that, you know, I knew that there was a vegan, kind of obvious vegan agenda, but that it had more to do with, you want to look good, you want to, you know, uh, wow and dazzle everybody, and this will help you do that. Is that not, was that being mischaracterized?
1: Um, You know, I guess it depends on who you're asking and how you're looking at it. It's certainly a fair thing to say that the book does include language in support of that, and again. It was a deliberate marketing decision to make sure that we were going to get the women who... I mean, unfortunately, most women don't care about what they're doing to animals and what's going on in slaughterhouses and factory farms or even their own health. What they care about is how they look. So a lot of the language in the book is targeted towards people who are interested in getting thin and losing weight. And it's written in a very sort of, um, you know, like in a very, like, chick-lit sort of way. But what drove myself and my co-author to write the book is the factory farming and slaughterhouse issues and also getting people to get healthy and and take their health into consideration when making their food choices.
0: Would you go so far as to say it was a little bit of a Trojan horse that you you were kind of uh, putting it out under, you know, within a certain genre in order to, uh, well, I don't want to say trick people, but entice uh, people who may at first have thought that it was something other than what it was.
1: Right, and you know, it was definitely a deliberate decision. And, you know, when you look at the book and you look at the cover art and you look at the title and you look at the back of the book, you'd never in a million years expect that you're going to learn about factory farming and slaughterhouses. And, unfortunately, nobody wants to know that information. And, and you know, even myself, I never would have gone out and sought that information. I was very much of the ilk of, I don't want to know, I don't want to know, I, don't want, I want to eat what I want to eat and I don't want to feel bad about it and then that information made its way into my hands and it changed my life so I, I felt very strongly that if we were gonna do this we we're gonna have to be a little bit manipulative and we we're gonna have to get the word out there in, in a different package
0: and so the, the package was, it was packaged as skinny bitch which I've been just saying just uh, rolling off my tongue here <laughs> which I usually wouldn't be uh, you know talking like that and uh, obviously that was a very dis- deliberate decision also, uh, I guess, reclaiming that word. And I, I just wanted to ask you how much do you think that it really is possible to take a word that already has such negative connotations and do that, or whether you were uh, not really expecting to, <laughs> to do anything positive with the word, but just kind of using it for the shock value.
1: Yeah, no, unfortunately, we didn't set out to reclaim the word. It was nothing more than a cheap attention-getting ploy to get regular women, everyday women, women who read magazines, women who watch Oprah, women who you know, participate in mainstream consumerism. It was really just a cheap attention-getting ploy <laughs> get them to walk past the book, see the title, see the cover art, and have them pick up the book and say, hey, what, what is this? Can you bitch, oh, my God, can you even swear on the cover of a book? What, what is this? Fortunately, it's it's been um it's been a successful marketing campaign because in two years that the book has been out, there's been uh, one million copies in print now, and it's being translated into twenty languages. So I think it was the right decision to call it "Skinny Bitch" instead of something like "How to Eat Vegan and Get Healthy."
0: Well, yeah, although there 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 may be uh, possibilities in between those two also, but um but so I guess this gets kind of to the heart of what I wanted to talk with you about that um it's a little bit of a an ends justifies the means uh kind of attitude that we uh in getting people to listen to pay attention to things that we know that they should pay attention to uh sometimes you have to use extreme measures and uh there you know there's there are different opinions as to how extreme those measures uh should get is that fair
1: yeah i mean unfortunately not everybody's going to see eye to eye to this and and i'm a feminist so i fully understand the argument um, that was presented in the recent New York Times piece, I get it. I get why women would question whether or not this is, a, is a, whether, in general, whether it's PETA using, you know, naked women in, in um, you know, anti-fur campaigns or, you know, a vegan strip club or a book called Skinny Bitch. I get the argument, and and I'm really happy that I'm part of a movement where there's participants who are conscientious and who would raise these questions and who don't go along and, and do things blindly, at the same time, having seen so much footage of slaughterhouses and learning so much about what goes on on a day-to-day basis and that, you know, 10 billion animals a year are enduring, to me the, end, the ends absolutely do justify the means. And there's nothing in this book that I'm ashamed about or that I feel badly about that, um, that I don't feel is, is warranted in being there in order to expose what's going on with these animals. mm
0: mm-hmm. Well I'm sure uh you're uh, familiar with Carol Adams and her critique of the kind of the overlap between uh you know institutionalized sexism and institutionalized meat eating and I just wonder what your opinion is on the the possibility that indirectly something that uh reinforces people's you know sexist kind of stereotypes um may also be just strengthening uh, a system that is going to also continue to uh to support meat eating.
1: You know what I think it if, if I think for the most part when people read skinny bitch cover to cover there's not I mean yeah, you know, we're saying, "Hey, if you want to lose weight, you got to stop eating this and if you want to look great, you've got to do that." So, is that sexist? No. Is it saying that women are concerned with their appearances? Yes. I mean, I think there's a fine line, and and it's really just an objective opinion, and if you want to stand in the position of looking at something like this is anti-feminine or this is exploitative, then you can certainly stand there and see it that way. If you want to look at something from the perspective that this is empowering, it's actually healthier to be thin, and by thin, I don't mean everyone should walk around being a size zero. I mean thin for your body, because when you have a higher body mass index, you're risking your um, likelihood of a variety of different cancers. So, is it politically correct to suggest that women should be thin? No. Is it the truth as far as health goes? Yes. Um, one thing that was not mentioned in the New York Times article that that um, didn't make it in there is that we are also writing a book for men called Skinny Bastard. <laughs> out. Um,
0: okay. Number
1: two thousand nine. So, you know, it, it doesn't land on me this argument. I know. I know what my um, intentions were when I wrote the book with Kim, and you know, neither one of us set out to be exploitative or to make women feel like unless they're a size zero or unless they've lost 50 pounds, they're not worthy. And there's even, you know, things that we say in the book, like don't dare, um, you know, measure your worth or your value by whether or not a man pays attention to you, something along those lines. And there's there's even a P.S. at the end of the book that says, you know, we couldn't care less about being skinny and that, you know, our real hope for putting the book out there is for women to get healthy. So, you know, the the argument doesn't really... Doesn't land on me. I, I'm also somebody who doesn't bristle at tough language, so I can see why somebody who thinks the word bitch needs to be reclaimed or that it shouldn't be used at all and that it's a misogynistic term. But I, I'm, I swear like a sailor, and there's really no words that offend me or that that make me cringe or blanch. So it's just saucy language to me.
0: Well, so you don't you see no difference between using bitch and using uh, you know the the traditional four-letter words that, uh, you know, are part of the, the uh, George Carlin's seven words that we can't say on television. I mean, to me, there's a difference between so-called scatological uh, language, which may or may not have to do with, uh, with sex or with actual scatology, and words that, are, that kind of carry uh, a derogatory uh, intent toward a certain group of people.
1: Yeah, I understand if you know if two people are fighting and and a woman is raising her um, her voice or or making her opinion known if she's referred to as a bitch, that's certainly offensive because that's you know being sexist. Calling our book "skinny bitch," I could see why somebody would would think and you know and I get it. I even right now I'm my brain is is stopping and going backwards and going, oh yeah, I get it. But again, you know, we didn't try and make any stand with this book. Again, it was just a cheap attention getting ploy. So that people would say, "Whoa, that
0: nobody says bitch on the cover of a book." What is that? Right, and as you as you point out, that worked very well. Um, but that when we uh, when we take that ends justifies the means kind of strategic attitude, it, it then begs the question of how far you know what ends we can we can go to. And I just wanted to bring in that that uh, uh, vegan strip club example out in Portland uh, that has gotten some attention and. Um, you know a strip club by itself may or may not be you may or may not agree that it's an inherently sexist institution, but is there can you think of a line that you would say you know this this in the service of educating people about animals? I would not countenance
1: you know I don't want to criticize anyone who's doing whatever it is they're doing to for the movement because. You know i made a decision to write this book and and for me this is the way i you know i i said i cannot sit around and do nothing about what's happening to these animals and this is what i'm going to do to attack this problem and to try and be part of the solution and i feel good about it and i feel good about the effort and i feel good about the response and i feel good about not just doing nothing and there were times before where i would sit around and say you know why doesn't this group do that or this group do that or all the groups should come together and work on this and then it, and I would have all these ideas in my head of how the movement could be farther along if people would only do this and it's easy to sit in your house or sit on your computer and criticize the efforts of others and it's an entirely different ballgame to to be somebody who's out there doing something so whether or not I would um, whether I would attack the problem the way other people have or whether or not. I would promote things in the way that other people have. It's not necessarily for me to say what's the one way to do it or the right way or the wrong way to do it. I know what what I've chosen to do and what I feel comfortable with. I'm never going to criticize the efforts of anybody else who's doing something to make the world a better place for animals. I appreciate everyone's efforts. I really, truly do.
0: Okay, great. Well, um, just for uh, those who are not... Uh, already familiar with the books, I just wanted to be sure that we do get some idea of it other than you know it happens to have this cover that uh <laughs> that has a bitch on it um and a- as you mentioned it is you you're using kind of the guise of looking great uh as a way of talking about uh good good nutrition and uh health as well as a diet that is uh is morally responsible um i'm wondering in in kind of uh pitching it that way did you did you come up with uh angles or things that uh to talk about that you feel that you ne- you wouldn't necessarily have thought of had you been writing a uh, kind of a standard here 's vegetarianism here's veganism and and here's why you should uh you know live your life this way
1: oh i mean if we're if I was just going to write an animal rights book i wouldn't have bothered talking about any of the health and nutrition stuff, and I would have written a straight animal rights book and actually when we were editing the book, there was a lot of stuff that had to be pulled out because it just didn't fit in the realm of a diet book. And, you know, I want to talk about rodeos. I want to talk about, um, you know, vivisection. I want to talk about um, circuses and zoos and fur farms and and every issue that's there. But unfortunately, this had to be a diet book. And the reason I actually decided to begin with to to, um, take on factory farming and slaughterhouses and, you know, animals raised for human consumption was just based on the sheer numbers, the 10 billion animals a year in the United States alone. Mm -hmm. So I just said, you know what, this is one of the highest numbers of animals being killed for for meat, so I'm going to deal with this issue. Um, down the road, I haven't ruled out writing a straightforward animal rights book now that we've got this fan base and people who are actually now interested in animal rights or who are pledging to be vegetarian for life after reading the book, and and they're wanting to learn more. And actually, that's why we do sort of um, give resources in the book, like websites for PETA um, and other groups as well, because we want to give people that, that other information too. But there's a fine line in packaging and promoting the book. We still want to make sure... I don't you know, people who are listening to your um, podcast already know. I don't I don't care if vegetarians or vegans buy this book because they already know, and they're already vegetarian and vegan for a reason. I want, you know, your mothers, your sisters, your friends, your husbands, your girlfriends, your boyfriends to read this book and go vegetarian because I just want the animals to stop being tortured and slaughtered for food.
0: Right. Well, I can't argue with that. Well, we're uh, just about out of time, but I wanted to just pin down uh, your next steps, the traditional last interview question now you you said that you're you guys are working on uh skinny bastard for 2009 um i of course have to point out the bastard is not quite you know when people see that on the cover they're not going to go oh my god i got to see what this book is because it has this bad word on the cover but that's just a reflection of our uh, the kind of unbalanced uh world that we live in um but uh you you're kicking around the idea of doing something outside of this genre. Is there anything else that you guys are are talking about how to how to capitalize on this fan base?
1: Uh we're actually in this December 2008, we've got a um pregnancy book, a how to eat guide for pregnant women called Skinny Bitch Bun in the Oven. That's going to come out December 2008, December, or sorry, May 2009, our fourth book is going to come out. It's a journal, sort of an empowering, you know, how to change your life journal, um, and that's called Skinny Bitchin', and that's going to come out in May. And then in December 2009 is when uh, Skinny Bastard will come out.
0: So it's just going to be, you're going to be all over the place. It's going to be great.
1: Talking about um, just, you know, building the brand and, you know, coming out with food products and possible clothing and Beauty products. Just making sure that people who make the switch can find products that are made cruelty free and that are made from good, wholesome ingredients. So if they're putting it on their skin or they're putting it in their mouths, they know they can trust if it's coming from us that it's done. It's done right.
0: Okay. Well, it, it certainly sounds like you've uh, given the whole thing a lot of thought, and uh, you know you certainly have a, a, the attention of a great many people. So. Uh, I salute you on that, and I uh, wish you the best, and thanks uh, for taking time out to talk with us on VegCast. Great. is Moby with Everloving from Play here on VegCast 43. And now we promise that you will go nuts over this edition of Science. Our science fact for VegCast 43 is macadamia nuts cut heart attack risk. This is a story from the Times of India about a study Uh, That appears in the current issue of the Journal of Nutrition. The lead is macadamia nuts included in a heart-healthy diet can effectively cut bad cholesterol, thereby reducing the risk of developing cardiovascular problems, according to a new study. Now, this story does not say who paid for the study. It wouldn't surprise me if the macadamia nut industry, or Big Nut, Uh, was behind this uh, because there's a lot of justification for why they're studying macadamia nuts. Uh, The researchers suggest the macadamia nuts should be included among nuts with qualified health claims. We looked at macadamia nuts because they are not currently included in the health claim for tree nuts, while other tree nuts are currently recommended as part of a heart-healthy diet, said Dr. Amy E. Greel, a recent Penn State Ph.D. recipient in nutrition and now senior nutrition scientist, at the Hershey Company, macadamia nuts have higher levels of monosaturated fats like those found in olive oil compared with other tree nuts. It almost sounds like they're spending half the story justifying why macadamia nuts. And now that I read the fine print there, I'm wondering if Hershey is about to uh, put out a new product centered around macadamia nuts. But anyway, here's the details of this. The participants were randomly assigned either the macadamia nut diet or the standard American diet and provided all meals for the participants for five weeks. They then switched diets and continued eating only food provided by the researchers for another five weeks. So they found that the macadamia nut-based diet did reduce total cholesterol, low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, and triglyceride levels compared with the standard American diet. The macadamia nuts reduced total cholesterol by 9.4% and low-density lipoprotein by 8.9%. We found that the reduction in LDL, or bad cholesterol we observed, was greater than would be predicted by just the healthy fats in nuts alone, said Greel. This indicates that there is something else in the nuts that helps lower cholesterol. And I don't know if she's saying that that's in macadamia nuts in particular. Perhaps it's the very macadamiosity of them that makes them such a superior tree nut. Uh, obviously, there is more study that's going to have to be done to tease that out exactly what it is about macadamia nuts that makes them so very heart Healthy and as soon as they do that study, I promise you that you will hear about it right here on Science Fact. Okay, before we get out of here, just one more thing I want to point you to. I didn't use this as Science Fact because number one, it's uh, not a scientific study; it's an article about a series of scientific studies and. Number two, I uh, if I were going to stretch the rules to include this in the science fact, well, I just did that for a very similar article in National Geographical a couple of podcasts ago. But it's still uh, worth just pointing out. It's uh, on Washington Post, uh, Sunday, April 13th. The headline is Animals and Us, Not So Far Apart. And I'm just going to read you the beginning of the article Ever since Galileo argued that the Sun was the center of the solar system, the idea of Earth as the universal hub has been the classic example of scientific arrogance. It's certainly a foolproof example of the way humans consider themselves the rule by which everything else should be measured. But when we use it, there's a sense that we don't make that kind of mistake anymore. Yet even today, scientists are swayed by the notion that humans stand at the center of the biological universe, especially when it comes to what we care about most, our minds. And it goes on to say that an explosion in animal research is showing that many components of human thought are shared with other species, and then goes further into details on that. And I just thought that was worth pointing out because that very opening of the article, and uh, many of the examples in the main point of the article are all very reminiscent of a piece that appeared in Vegetarian Voice a few years ago, which I will I'll link both of these in the show notes. You can compare and contrast. I don't think that there's necessarily any uh, plagiarism or influence there. Uh, I doubt that the writer of this article, uh, Christine Kennelly, uh, is a, an avid vegetarian voice reader, but who knows? Uh, at any point, uh, what it really seems to me to be pointing to is the fact that this notion that uh, we may not actually be the center of all existence, especially of consciousness, is uh, something that's becoming evident to more and more people as we go along, and with that, I suppose, there is hope. Okay, that's going to do it for VegCast 43. I want to thank our sponsors, Temptation Vegan Ice Cream, the world's greatest non-dairy ice cream. You can look for them at gotemptation.com. Thanks also to Rory Friedman, co-author of Skinny Bitch and Skinny Bitch in the Kitch, for uh, playing along and uh, putting up with my questions about sexism and veganism. And thanks, of course, to Moby, for the permission to play his music on VegCast. We'll be back at you again in a couple weeks with VegCast 44. And until that point, please get out there and live like you mean it.